0: You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Once again, you can turn to Romans chapter 13. My, how we are moving along. Romans chapter 13. You want to look there. And on your way there, I've got a great photo from last week. I believe this is from Malachi. It's the only one I got. That's yours, isn't that, Malachi? Yeah. Okay. This is great. This is where we were. As you're on your way to Romans 13, you remember when I first introed the sermon with the, the hikers and the freeze-dried meal, and Malachi <laughs> greatly pictured it, freeze-dried marks of a Christian just adds the spirit, so that's pretty cool. So, anyway, brotherly affection, fervent in the spirit, humility, and so forth in there. So, that was great. Great job, Malachi, on that one. I like it. So, all right. Romans 13, we move on from chapter 12. Let's talk about governing authorities today. So here we are in Romans 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, let's listen to God's word first. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Lord, as we come to this passage and the challenge it is for us at times, Lord, to willingly, gladly carry out, I just pray again, Lord, would you work by your spirit in each heart that's here. You would convict where it is needed. Lord, cause us to, as James talks about, may we not just hear this word today and go about our way. May we be changed by your word. It is your word. It's what guides us. It's what instructs us. It's what rebukes us. And so, Lord, any of that, we just want to pray, Lord, whatever you would have for each of our hearts, including the preacher, that you would speak to us through your word and through our time meditating, thinking on what you've spoken here and its application to our lives. So guide our time by your spirit. Guide each heart. Help us to apply what we're going to listen and think about today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My hope is that prior to COVID, I would have preached this passage in a similar way. But that time of COVID, and I know it's not over, is it, Uh, brought to light passages like Romans 13. That was kind of one of those during that time, trying to think through Romans 13. Because we were kind of in this face of this overreaching government. Nobody here was jailed, don't think. But you might remember names like James Coates or a Tim Stevens. These are pastors from Canada who were jailed. They were jailed just for gathering on a Sunday, just like what we're doing. Happened to be against the ordinance of the day. Shall not gather. And they did in obedience to the Lord. And they were jailed for a time. So... Romans 13, post-COVID in a way, has a little more personal feel in light of where we've been and perhaps, as I preach this, where in some ways might be going once again. So, and who knows where the Lord would have things. But with that situation at least fresher in our minds you might come to this. Some might come to this passage in particular of 13 and kind of balk at the idea of ever submitting again or being subject to any governing authority. Perhaps some are just convinced the government lost, lost all its credibility during that time. And, and even now, you could say there's reason, good reason, to be skeptical about the government, that it's looking out for the good of all her citizens. And yet in those thoughts, it's good to also keep in mind the context, because Paul is writing this letter to people in Rome. And the leadership in Rome at the time was a guy named Nero, Emperor Nero. And perhaps at this time of writing, Nero was not at the, at the peak of his atrocities. But Nero was no godly man. He was no godly ruler. He was quite terrible. He was sexually perverse. He was ruthless. And eventually, if you know that story, he eventually burned all of Rome, burned the city of Rome. It's just a bad, you can look up some readings on Nero and go, this guy was no good. He would make even our current leader look pretty pretty tame. And so in light of that, here's that context. We share that with where Paul, I think, is writing to this church in Rome. And so here we are in chapter 13. My plan is to look through this in really four parts. Number one, we're going to look at verses 1 through 2 and look at authority's source. So the source of authority or authority's source. That's verses 1 through 2. In verses 3 through 5, we're going to look at authority's action. So firstly, what is the source of that authority? What is the action that authority is to do? Number three in verses 6 through 7, authority's payment, for lack of a better term. What do we pay? What do we owe? Authority, the payment there. We'll talk about taxes. And then in all of this, there is probably going to be, at least in my mind and in yours, I assume, a ringing question. But, but what about fill in the blank? And so, number four, we're going to look at that point. Number four, but what about this? All right. We're already crying about the what about no, but uh, what about so. I'm going to leave it to the end because if you notice here in this section, Paul doesn't give us a what about. I think there's some clues to kind of how to think about government. There's some clues here, but we want to take what Paul says, take it at what he's saying here, and then on the back side of it, ask: So what about fill in the blank? Your other questions about do we obey all the time, every time? How do we? What do we do with this? So we're going to get to those. Let's look at the text and then get to that. So head back into verse one an authority's source here. Verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Like the last two weeks we looked in Romans 12, the seven verses we're looking at here, they're not particularly hard to understand. I don't think, again, it takes you got to get out the Greek. It's helpful. But to understand these, you can read through these somewhat relatively easy to understand. The challenge is actually what they're calling us to do. And the call here seems to be emphatic, kind of repeated is what I mean, to be subject to, the call to be in submission to the governing authorities. Paul says something similar, Titus chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work one of the main challenges to submission though perhaps why paul writes this is our own bent and and it comes all the way from adam in the garden it's that bent to rebel and to challenge authority and i think challenge it no matter where it's at to say i'm my own you're going to tell me what i need to do who's going to tell me you know don't do that well then i want to do i want to go against that it's that rebellion Maybe even here, I don't know, maybe the Roman church would reason, since they are in Christ, do they have to follow any of the authority? And they give given a new authority. They're submitting to Christ. Do we have to do any of this anymore? Do we have to follow authority? But Paul frames submission, he frames being subject, with a reminder of who, in fact, put that authority here. Who is behind? Who is the source of that authority? That is, that God makes them exist God appoints them. ESV says they've been instituted by God. So, very simply, there is no authority outside of what God establishes. And I don't think it just means the good ones. Listen to Daniel chapter 2. He says there Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, he removes kings and And sets up kings. Daniel's telling us, as others, authority comes, as right here, authority comes from God. And so a reflection of our submission to God is our submission to the authority that he's put in place. What about those who resist that authority? Verse 2 answers. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist, will incur judgment. To resist authority, it's really, the word here, if you looked at it in the Greek, it's really anti-submission. To resist is to really anti-submit. It's to not submit. It's to resist or oppose God's appointed one, which is what? It's really to oppose God himself. And so Paul's not just laying out here, these are some nice ways you ought to live but really saying going against the governing authority is to go against the Lord. One question here in terms of this incurring judgment, is this judgment spoken of here, is, it, is this an eternal judgment in nature or more like a temporal judgment, a consequence for disobeying earthly authority? I think the overall context where we're at would say this is the immediate consequences of the earthly authority. I think we see that in the, the verses that are going to follow here. But to summarize again, authority's source is God Himself. So to submit or resist, it's really a matter, ultimately, we've got to think of it ultimately before the Lord. I just want to pause here and just remind you of the ultimate submission, our submission to the Lord. That if you don't know, and and judgment, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, then truly eternal judgment does await you for all the rebellion, for all the sins of which you've fallen short of the glory of God. And so look to Him. Submit to Christ who died the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Look to Him. Be free from that eternal judgment as we look here in verse 3 and following kind of this temporal consequence of the authority, the action that God has put in place. Okay, so on to verses 3 through 5 and the action, authority's action. Look at verse 3. 4 says, can I continue here? For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. It's really, it's really common sense if you think about it. I mean, if you do bad things, if you do wrong things... Yes, you ought to fear the authorities. Let me just put that in a simple probably illustration. Maybe I've used it before. But simply driving your car at the speed limit, you do not have to worry about who's on the other side with a radar gun or whatever looking at you. You can drive in relative ease and peace. There is no fear. It's not, <gasps> it's just, I'm going the speed. No problem. There's no fear. However, you're going 90, you ought to be in fear. And then play that out in so many other ways. But that's kind of the idea. So, those who do good have no reason to fear God's servant. On to verse 4. Speaking of the one in authority. For he is, catch this, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. There it is again. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It would seem like Paul here again and again emphasizes this connection to authorities and to who they serve, their source and who it is that is God that put them in power. They are, it's twice here, they are God's servants. It's like Paul just wants to make clear this case. These authorities are servants of God. They operate under his authority which is good for us to remember, and it would be good for leadership and government to remember. I think we could all sit here and hope that our government would grab hold of this, that they would say, I am in this position, whatever it is, under submission ultimately to the Lord. This is not for my glory and my exaltation and my orders and my laws. This is to enforce what God says. And so government ought to come under as a servant of the Lord. It would be good to remember that. But again, this teaching highlights consequences. Verse 3, do good, you win the ruler's approval. Do evil, or the the common phrase, do the crime, pay the time. And the government authority is God's appointed avenger to carry out God's wrath. He bears the sword for a purpose. So the ruler is to do, remember last, last week, Romans 12 19, we ought to not avenge ourselves, but leave it what, leave it to God. And how is that played out? I think it's played out here in Romans 13 as these agents of God's wrath, the authority that He has put in place. But what if that ruler is terrible? There's kind of these questions come. What about a terrible ruler? We're gonna get to that. Point number four. Note this, though. You may not feel like it, maybe very seldom feel like it, but government does remain, just to kind of put this plug in for government, does remain as a gracious provision of God in an utterly sinful world. Listen to one who has actually kept his church open in light of government, who said this also, John MacArthur. He said, even the poorest government is a blessing compared to no government. Can you imagine, he says, what would happen, for example, in a society where there was absolutely no one in control? It would be an instant self-destruct. And I, I think we see that played out in the cities where law and order has been pulled back, maybe defunded, all these sorts of things, and you see just these are places of pure anarchy. And so on the one hand, there is to be, a, I think, a thankfulness for God's grace in government. Though you could fill in the blank with the rest of that sentence, oh, but what about, and yes, and there is order as well. Okay, verse 5 lays out what's necessary. I'm going through these a little bit quickly just because we want to give time for the the but what abouts. But verse 5, let's look at that. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Uh, wrath, we might understand, maybe Paul has already just given that to us, what kind of wrath coming through, the punishment for the crime, that sort of thing. But what about being in submission for the sake of conscience? Conscience, it's, it's a subject I don't think I've talked about a lot, but I do think Scripture addresses this in more than one place, and we ought to think and give credit to this idea, what is this conscience? Conscience. I don't often talk, but it's good to think through. Authors, uh, Andy Nacelli, J.D. Crowley, they've got a book written called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. And they say this regarding the conscience. Think about this in terms of what's going on here. Why should we obey for sake of conscience? They say this, you're made in the image of God, and God is a moral God. So you must be a moral creature who makes moral judgments. And what is conscience if not shining the spotlight of your moral judgment back on yourself, your thoughts, and your actions? Kind of this, this inward light going, is what I'm about to do or what I just did right, wrong? This conscience going in, this moral judgment within. They say, what ought to surprise you is that you would even care about the verdict of your conscience. Yet you do care intensely. Though we all have a sense that what's going on in our conscience is secret, we also have a sense that an all-powerful, all-knowing God is in on the secret and will someday judge those secrets at his great and terrifying tribunal. They then offer just two principles regarding the conscience. Number one, God is the only Lord of conscience. That's really important. And then number two, you should always obey your conscience. So they make a distinction. You must obey your conscience. That's what Luther did. You know, here I stand in his conscience. I can do no other. I I must stand in the word of God, that idea. And yet even your conscience must be under or in submission to God who is the Lord. So our conscience, it's not kind of this moral land of free-for-all where whatever feels right, maybe a conscience, is seared in that way, but it must be governed by God through his word. So for the sake of conscience, for the sake of wrath, obey, be in subjection to the governing authorities. And at the same time, for the sake of conscience, do not obey what is against God, and so we're inching closer to point number four, but before we get there, just two more verses, and yes, yes, God's word in other places as well does speak to taxes, and so we're going to look at point number three, the authorities' payment, the payment, verses six through seven, for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The NIV speaks of these servants of God as giving their full time to governing. Maybe for some of them we wish it would go to part time, but some of them we need full time governing. And it would seem to me broadly here, Paul links taxes with the work of God's servants, the governing authorities and their, their work to really to promote what is good and to avenge the evil. So taxes are not all bad. They can be used wrongly to fund what ought not to be funded. But we also like to drive. I like to drive on a smooth road. It's nice. County 14 is better than ever. It's great. Uh, I like to have police protection and I'm okay paying them and maybe paying them more to do that. I like to know our country is defended, that sort of thing. So taxes are not inherently evil. And Paul's call in verse 7 is then to pay. Pay to all what is owed. Whether it's taxes or revenue, and between taxes and revenue, I'm not quite sure the difference. There might be some minute differences there. I don't know what's tax, revenue, that sort of thing. But to also pay respect or honor. And so I think there's a principle here. Principle that spiritual truths and realities play out in the day-to-day life of the individual Christian, the individual believer. That is, Christianity is not just for Sunday morning, it's for all of life. So the obedience of faith, we talk about in Romans, it's centered on Christ. And it outflows to the world that the Christian lives in. It seems fitting here to see Jesus' own response to a question on taxes. So let's look at that. We've seen it before years ago when we went through Mark. Head back to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. What does Jesus think on taxes? What should we do? Maybe that's just Paul's idea. Mark 12, let me read, verse, starting verse 13. Jesus here is in the temple courts. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesars. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus' response and answer here, it's beautiful, and I think it succinctly sums up our relationship to governmental authorities. Pay taxes. Whose inscription? Pay taxes. Caesar, whatever. But even Caesar is not God. So give to God what is due him. And here that sets up our last point. Authority's source, authority's action, authority's payment. Point number four, but what about? What about? What about the government telling me to do something that is against God? Or what about certain mandates? What about when the government promotes evil, and then calls on me to do the same thing? Or how am I supposed to obey and submit at that point? Let me just say, number one, number one, we have multiple instances in Scripture of a biblical resistance and in church history. Let me just just fly over a few of them. What about resistance? Exodus 1 tells us, tells the king... The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he commanded the Hebrew midwives, remember, to kill all the sons. You can let the daughters live, but when those sons are, when they're given birth, kill the sons. What did, the Hebrew, what did these midwives do? It says they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Daniel chapter 3 Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego refused to bow and worship the golden image, telling the king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Or Daniel 6, in clear violation of the king's order, Daniel prays to the Lord. Quite interesting that I quoted just earlier in this sermon from Daniel 2 that says God sets up kings. He brings them, tears them down. Even in that here we see in this very same book this biblical resistance. Famously, Acts 5, Peter and the apostles, they reply to those who, who had charged them. Peter and the apostles, do not teach any further in the name of Jesus. And remember their reply? We must obey God rather than men. Even historically, close, I mentioned Luther, closer to our time, Cory ten Boom, who hid the Jews from the Nazis in the, in the World War II. Or in that same war, maybe you've read the, the thick biography uh, about um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was not only a pastor, but he was also part of a plot conspiracy to kill Adolf Hitler. That's, <laughs> I love the title of pastor, prophet, spy, something like that. Um, that was Bonhoeffer. And so were all these and, and a thousand others, were they acting in disobedience to God? No, by no means. And to look at this, I want to look at something called sphere sovereignty, but before we look at that, head to Psalm 2. This is just one other place. We're not going a lot of places, but if you would just turn back to Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to read it in just a little bit here. And I think it speaks, amongst other places, in what we read, Milt read from First Timothy The sovereignty of God over all things, but Psalm 2, we'll get to that in a minute. One, I think, helpful way to think on all this, I just find it most helpful, comes from the thinking of a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper. He was more than that, but he's dead now. He died in 1920. But it's this idea, and we've talked about it back kind of in the height of COVID, mass, all those sorts of things. It's this idea of called sphere sovereignty, S-P-H-E-R-E, sphere sovereignty. And in order to think on this, I'm going to quote rather extensively from a guy named Andre 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 I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, but he wrote an article entitled this, and this was 2018, actually 2014, goes back there. But entitled "Whom Do You Serve? Sphere Sovereignty and the Need for Limits on Power." Listen into what Andre has to say here as we think through the but what abouts. He says this. Children are often told to obey many different folks. Listen to your mom and dad. Listen to the policeman. Listen to your teacher. Listen to the pastor. Adults, too, are encouraged to obey various authority figures, which raises a question. What happens when demands of the state and demands of other authorities clash? Whom do we obey? He says, the Dutch philosopher, theologian, and, get this, prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, developed a system of thought to assist in understanding the authority structures in the world. And the system is called the sphere sovereignty. And I think it helps, he says here, it helps answer the question, who do we obey when various demands on us and our behavior clash? He says, Kuyper argued and demonstrated from the Bible that God has created in society a number of different institutions or spheres, each with their own respective roles and responsibilities. Three of the most important institutions created by God are the church, the state, government, we've been talking about that, and the family, and then others wrestle over other spheres. In the Bible, God gives each of these spheres a distinct task and role. God has instituted the church, the state, and the family and invests each with its own specific sphere of authority. I have a little illustration that was in this article. I just thought so helpful to see these spheres. Here's kind of what we're talking about. You see church, family, state, maybe others are charity or society or academy. Some of them intersect some, but they are also distinct. He says, Here, there is, of course, as you look at this, there is, of course, some overlap from sphere to sphere. Fraud can't be limited to the market sphere. It requires the state criminal law power to protect the consumer. Or physical assault of a child can't be limited to the family sphere. It requires the state criminal law power to protect the child. Or restorative justice can't be limited to the state sphere that is, restorative justice, it requires the family sphere and the church sphere to mend broken relationships. And so, Shulin then points out the key to this Kuyperian, we're giving big words, right? Kyperian sphere sovereignty. What's the key? He says, and he quotes here, that over each and every sphere reigns, you see it there, Christ as sovereign. Kuyper's famous saying applies here, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That is that Christ rules over everything and says, mine. That's helpful as you think of the spheres. Listen to Psalm 2 in light of that in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. This is Christ over all. Be warned, be wise. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Jesus, the Son of God, is the King of all other governments and authorities and kings. And so ultimately, everything, everyone answers to Christ. Shulin continues. He says, Recognizing the supremacy of God is necessary in public policy because when we fail to do so, someone or something else will take God's place as supreme authority. Listen to what he writes. Now, this is a Canadian writer, so in a Canadian context. So listen, he's going to write about their former chief justice. Listen to this. In a speech delivered in October 2002, her honor can't remember her name. It's on the next slide. but Her honor stated that the rule of law exerts an authoritative claim upon all aspects, aspects of selfhood and experience in a liberal democratic state, influencing local community and familial family structures. The authority claimed by law touches upon all aspects of human life and citizenship. It makes total claims upon the self and leaves little of human experience untouched. So Shulin writes, these total claims on us as legal subjects, she said, flow from a conception of authority rooted in the sovereign state. Look at the next slide here then. Here's the state. So he changes Kuyper's quote here and paraphrases this chief justice. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which the law, which is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You can see the difference when Christ is replaced with state law. He goes on, For our chief justice, law remains the supreme authority. So there remains a tension between the law of the state and religious precepts, familial, family obligations, and individual responsibilities. Now of all the spheres, the state, the church, the family, the market, which has the most power? And he answers, quite obviously, the state does. Now, hang on, hang with me as I keep reading. He's saying the state's got this ability to have such power. Listen to what he says. As the Apostle Paul, i going to quote from our Romans, once wrote, it bears the sword. The state has unlimited financial resources, it has coercive powers, it writes the laws, and it has lethal force. So if God is removed as sovereign, who becomes Sovereign. The state does. This is absolutely evident in every officially atheist country from the last century. The USSR, China, North Korea, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy. When the state raises itself above God, then God becomes a problem for the state. And know this, as the state replaces God or makes itself God, then it naturally also begins to compete with the family, substituting itself for the family. And when we free citizens in a free country begin to think that the the state will provide everything for us, not just national defense or a fair justice system as it ought to, but also total health care, education, food, clothing, shelter, unemployment wages, settlement of petty disputes with our landlords and employers, and on and on, then we are looking to the state not just as God but also as Savior. It's a good perspective and helpful for us. One more little part, just to clarify. He says, This approach to understanding the very limited authority of the state should not be interpreted as a proposal for anarchy. He says, I once swore an oath of allegiance to the country I love, my Canada, an oath which I stand by to this day, I pray for her leaders every day. I strive to obey all her laws. But here's the rub. When those in power begin to legislate in areas over which they have no jurisdiction, that is, they cross a sphere, my trust in the government plummets, and when those in power dare to legislate in such a way that I must either obey the state's law or violate my conscience, then I say loudly with the Apostle Peter, I must obey God rather than Amen. Coming back to Romans 13. We must acknowledge governing authorities are put in place by God and our God-given task is to submit to them insofar as their sphere is to govern our lives. Submission to the government is submission to God, but Doug Moo makes this distinction and we're kind of closing around this. Paul demands a submission to government, not strict and universal obedience. The Christian submits to government by acknowledging this divinely ordained status of government and its consequent right to demand the believer's allegiance. In most cases, then, Christian submission to government will involve obeying what government tells the Christian to do. But government does not have absolute rights over the believer, for government, like every human institution, think of those spheres again, is subordinate to God himself. One named Robert Jewett, he quotes here, Submission to the governmental authorities is therefore an expression of respect, not for the authorities themselves, but for the crucified deity who stands behind them. In a similar way, and maybe this is helpful, the Christian wife called on to submit to her husband, may well have to disobey a particular request of her husband if it conflicts with her allegiance to God. Many times I've told our kids, you need to obey me when I tell you, I ask you obey this unless I'm asking you to do something God would not have you do. And there's, that, there's my sphere to give instruction as a father, and then ultimately, my kids, ultimately all of us, we are under Christ, under his lordship and reign. And so there are cases where submission to God may actually mean disobedience, godly disobedience to men. Let me close by saying, may God give us great wisdom and steadfastness and courage to do good. To gladly submit to the earthly authority God's put in place and at the same time fearing God and obeying him above all else no matter what sphere we're in to obey the Lord, and no matter what comes. We saw with COVID how quickly things changed in different things. May God give us courage for the day to have wisdom. Working through some of these things are helpful to us ahead of time uh, to deal with them. Let's ask the Lord for help. Let's pray. Father, I think of that phrase: "Two truths can be true; two things can be true at the same time." It is true we are to submit to government. That's what your Word is saying. There's, there's not a way around it here, scripturally. It's, it's the call, be, because we want to acknowledge government is there because you've put it there, bad and good alike, for your sovereign purposes. So we want to trust you by faith, obey and honor where we can. But Lord, where those things, where we are called to do things that are ultimately disobeying you, ultimately not following you, not ultimately not in submission to you, Lord, would you give us courage? Would you give us clarity of mind, clarity of conscience to say, I must do this. I must not follow this law for the sake of my Lord. And then, Lord, other times where it's not that clear that we would follow the government you've put in place. We need your wisdom. We need your grace. And Lord, what COVID taught, we need each other to sort through these things and to help us. Lord, thank you for your provision of your word. Thank you for the whole counsel of scripture and the challenge before us. And we thank you that you go with us. You're going to be faithful to complete what you've begun. Please work in us in these sometimes complicated areas of government. But may in all things, may we submit gladly to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.